trying to get stuff set up ahead of time so you bonk, don't bonk the microphone. Well, I hope you enjoyed the reversal of roles there in worship this morning. I know I did. It was a great time. By the way, the kids are dismissed to their class. Um, so you can all head onward and think Miss June is teaching it today. Is that right? So June will be teaching today. Get myself all set up here. Well, in, uh, when Josh mentioned this possibility of switching, I was really considering what to talk about. And what better to talk about than what you personally have been reading about in the scriptures during your daily studies and devotions. And I've been going through the Gospels in my devotional time. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and just finished Luke uh, day before yesterday or so, and uh, we'll be moving onward from there. But I've been really been hit by some unexpected answers that Jesus has given to many people's questions uh, or statements that they made throughout that, especially in the Gospel of Luke. So what I wanted to look at is some of those vignettes of things that people asked how Jesus responded, and what that means to us today, and help us to think more like Christ in those things. So prayerfully, uh, I narrowed these down to five vignettes. Uh, There's 20-some that I came across just in the Gospel of Luke. So obviously, uh, you would stone me if we went over all 20 of those, and especially when you're thinking about there's a potluck after the service. So... One thing you'll need to keep in mind as we look at these is that there is a presenting question that is given by a person or people or a statement, but there's really an underlying question and an important response by Jesus. So in your notes in the bulletin, you'll see that it's got the, the statement and then a blank for the question and the response. So we'll look at that this morning. So let's start with the first one, which is, Son, where have you been? Which is similar to, why are you leaving when needed? Now, I don't know. Now you can see that somewhat. If we could turn off these lights on the choir thing, that would be helpful. Uh, The pictures I'm borrowing as one of them says, if, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, it has imprinted on the picture, thou shalt not steal. So I'm not stealing these pictures, I'm just borrowing them for the message. <laughs> so let's turn to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 44, actually. If you want to look at the Pew Bible there, it's page 858, I think, is what I saw down there. And we're going to move kind of quick, so... Hang in there. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be, about my, must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Then over in chapter 4, kind of a similar story in the early part of his ministry. Uh, and when it was day, verse 42, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the, good news, uh, preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Son, where have you been? Jesus, we have you right where we want you and right where we need you. Why aren't you with us? Why have, um, you know... Uh, why do you want to head somewhere else, they were saying in chapter 4, when the need is so great here? In other words, their underlying question was, where is Jesus when I can't find him and need him? You ever been there where you felt like Jesus is lost? <laughs> where are you? I need you. I can't find you. In chapter 2, you saw Mary crying out uh, in desperation, Why have you treated us so? You, know, you can hear a mother just saying that to their child. Why are you treating us like this? In the midst of their great distress, they looked everywhere except where they should have looked. And that was where Jesus was in the temple. That phrase, great distress, can also be translated as sorrowing. Uh, we've been sorrowing because you've been gone. Uh, Paul used that same phrase in Romans 9 when he described his feelings about his fellow kinsmen, the Jews, being lost. Uh, it was also used of the condition of the lost souls in Hades in Luke chapter 16. Well, where was Jesus? Jesus was involved in the things of his father. He was doing what his father had wanted. They couldn't see the bigger thing that he was accomplishing, so they were getting freaked out. <laughs> um, and the fact, if you noticed in both passages, Jesus used the word must. I must do these things. It's not like a, a slight thing. It's something he had to do. So when we are in distress, when we're troubled, where is Jesus when we can't find him and need him? The answer He's accomplishing the Father's business and purposes. Now, Jesus is never missing in action. Even when he is silent, he speaks loudly through that silence. If you remember in the book of Esther, that's a great uh, example of God's silence, but work. He has other things to do than what we try to limit him to doing with our finite, tiny little minds, you know, that we try to... Uh, limit him with his work is often greater than we know but it's always according to and in the hands of a sovereign God whose plans are wonderfully great so amen is right so we can rest in that and we can be thankful Jesus never gets lost you know he's right where he is supposed to be well, let's take a look at another example uh, this is a little later on in the ministry of Jesus where he's accused of hanging out with that crowd. You can see Jesus in the picture there with his disciples and the tax collectors and all these guys. Let's take a look 
Again, at two passages quickly, Luke 5, 29 and following, and also in chapter 15. In Luke 29 and following, it says, And Levi, and Levi, of course, is Matthew, who became his disciple, uh, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you can flip over to Luke chapter 15 real quickly. We're going to be kind of going backwards again there, so I'm sorry to make you flip around so much. In Luke 15, verses 1 to 7, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." So why are they hanging out with this crowd? Jesus always seemed to focus on the down and out, didn't he, as you read through the Gospels. That bothered the religious leaders. It was contrary to the practice of a good Jewish person to hang out with somebody who was socially contaminating, you know, somebody who might contaminate your spirituality, you know, somebody that might actually uh, make you do what the Bible says. But I think, really, it convicted them of their own failure is why they were uh, saying these things. So rather than the presenting question, why are you hanging out with that crowd, the real question was, why does Jesus focus so much on the losers? Now, they saw everybody else as a loser in their viewpoint. Why did Jesus focus on those losers? And what's your reaction to the lost people around you? I know in preparing for this message, it's, it's a very trying thing to do such a thing. And having um, to deal with a lot of lost people around me uh, can be a little frustrating at times. But what is our reaction? Is it pharisaical? Are you looking at people who are lost and need Jesus as something that's contaminating to you, that uh, is a big pain to have to deal with? Or are you looking at them at, with the eyes of Jesus in love? Warren Wearsby had an interesting insight to this. And I hope you can read these things, by the way, on there. He said, The scribes and the Pharisees criticized Jesus because they did not understand either his message or his ministry. Jesus simply did not fit into their traditional religious life. It is unfortunate when leaders resist change and refuse to try new things that God was doing. It is significant that Jesus attracted sinners while the Pharisees repelled them. So Jesus attracted sinners, the Pharisees repelled them. 
And did Jesus do these things to merely irk the religious leaders and get on their case? No. Why did he focus so much on those who were lost, uh, those who they considered outsiders and not worth the effort? I'll give you a hint. We are all lost, every single one of us apart from him, including the good person, the religious, moral person. As the next passage says, Romans three twenty-two to 24, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He came to call sinners to repentance, the sick to healing, the lost to being found. That's what Jesus came to do, and that's why he focuses so much on the losers. Why? The answer Because you're one of them. All of us are lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was his whole purpose. That's what we celebrated in communion and remembered. He came to seek and to save the lost. So next time that pagan neighbor of yours or the group staying at your hotel that you work at is acting like a bunch of crazy people, Remember, they're lost. They need Jesus. They need him. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Well, let's go on to our next little vignette. And this is one of my favorite ones. Personally, I'm going through. And this is the one, the picture, I don't know if you can see, says, thou shalt not steal in the middle of that picture. But um, let's look at this. John the Baptist, he's always been one of my favorite people in the scriptures, and and I can relate to John in what happened here. Let's look at John chapter 7, John, I knew I'd say that, Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Whenever I say John the Baptist, I think of the gospel of John. Luke 7, verse 18 and following. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to us, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on him, who, uh, excuse me, on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So old John the Baptist there, he had served faithfully in his role as the forerunner of the Messiah, Possibly he felt that Jesus would come in. Oh, we missed a question, didn't we? Let's go back and get to the underlying question there. Why aren't you doing what I thought you would? Is really what John's concern was. And as I was saying, John had faithfully served in his role as a forerunner of the Messiah. Possibly he felt that Jesus was going to be coming in and wiping out the Roman Empire and establishing the ultimate kingdom of God right there. 
And here John was languishing in prison. Why was John in prison? Because he told the truth. (laughs) Because he stood up for Jesus. Just like the people we remember today on this day of prayer for the persecuted church. Many of them are there just because they told the truth. John had even said, he must increase, but I must decrease in John chapter 3. And gladly, he diminished in popularity. But he was disappointed, and he struggled in his incarceration. I'm sure all of us would if we were in the same boat. It wasn't what he thought or necessarily what he wanted. And John's experience reminded me of a song I heard on my playlist at work that I listened to this past week called What I Thought I Wanted by Sarah Groves. And I don't know if you can read that or not, but I'm going to read the lyrics, part of the lyrics for you. She's saying, I passed understanding a long, long time ago in the simple home of systems and the answers we all know. What I thought I wanted, what I got instead, leaves me broken and somehow peaceful. I keep wanting you to be fair but that's not what you said. I want certain answers to these prayers, but that's not what you said. When I get to heaven, I want to go find Job. I want to ask a few hard questions. I want to know what he knows about what it is he wanted and what he got instead, how to be broken and faithful. I keep wanting you to be fair, but that's not what you said. I want certain answers to these prayers, but that's not what you said. Does that sound like you sometimes? No, it sure sounds like me. If you face times of doubt and discouragement, you're in good company. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Paul, and yes, John the Baptist all struggled with uh, these things that are, are discouraging. But the key to victory in these times, Jesus said to John's disciples, When you have doubts, remember what you know. When you're struggling, remember what you know. Jesus was was being true to his word and living out his calling, and he was proving it by his actions. The word offended, uh, the Greek word for the word offended is the word scandalon, where we get our words scandal or scandalized, and it referred to the bait that was put into a trap. So they would put a bait in trap, just like if you wanted to catch a critter of some kind, you'd put that in there, and they would be tempted by that bait. So Jesus is saying to John, don't fall for the trap and the lie that I have failed you. You've just lost track of my bigger purposes that you may not understand right now. And that's what Jesus is telling to us. Rely on what you do know in these times that he's doing right in front of you. And remember, he's always going to be faithful. He's always going to be true. Let's move on to our next one. I'm sorry to move quickly, but that's the way it goes. The next one, these guys must have been bad. This is a, a rendering of the collapse of the Tower of Siloam in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. There were some present at that time, who, at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What a strange response Jesus gave. But he's pointing out something very important. When tragedy or injustice strikes, we're often unsure for the reasons for those things, if there is any reason. When these people were asking about this event and Jesus said this other one, their actual question was probably, why do bad things happen? And we hear that a lot, this question being asked. We see horrific events like the fires up north that destroyed so much. We see the earthquake one year to the date of the previous bad earthquake in Mexico killed men, women, and children. The hurricanes that devastated the Caribbean, uh, Texas, parts of Louisiana and Florida. Those things, we wonder why. We see terrorism and the threat of war, even threat of mass destruction. Now, some people look at these things and have seen them as signs of the last day's judgments. And indeed, these could be birth pangs, as Jesus put it, of the judgment yet to come. But then there are the everyday tragedies that happen. And we're so quick to erroneously link the bad, why do bad things happen, with judgment. Even the disciples did this in John chapter 9. We have that on the slide. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, uh, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So nobody's sin led to this man's uh, blindness. It was God, God's purpose. God knew what he was doing. And when he allowed that to happen. So God can even use the seemingly bad things in our lives to work together for good. Some of the things he fixes, other things he doesn't fix. And I hate to tell you, but these things are, are going to happen uh, in your life. Uh, sometimes we just think it's unfair, like the Sarah Grove song said above. Well, how do we face things that God does not just make better or erase. And that's the the answer Jesus gave them. It's not necessarily judgment. It is eternity calling. When bad things happen, it's a reminder to us that eternity is calling. Um, Judgment is not necessarily the reason that these things are happening. I hate to tell you, but in a fallen, sinful world, that the corrupted earth sits and groans for things to be set right. It tells us in Romans 9, bad things are going to happen. But when they do, Jesus tells us that eternity is calling. It's a warning that unless we also repent, we'll also perish, and we need him. We're all going to face that day when the doctor says, well, I've got some bad news. 
or some tragedy strikes or transforms and takes our lives. We need to be alert and ready for the things that will count for eternity. Now, there's a Christian musician, and we've sung some of her songs here called Laura Story, or named Laura Story, not called. And a wonderful musician, wonderful songs. Her husband had a brain aneurysm, something like that. I don't remember. A brain problem resulting in permanent brain damage that's never been fixed. And she wrote a wonderful book called When God Doesn't Fix It. And some of the things she put in there I thought were kind of important for us to remember. Is that we tend to hold to myths that trials are a curse that God's primary desire is just to fix everything that's broken, and that God is absent when things are dark. Rather, she learned through all this that the truth is that trials are an opportunity. His primary desire is to fix our broken relationship with him, and that God's light shines brightest when things are dark around us. So he shines bright in that darkness. So remember those things when you're tempted to worry about why do bad things happen. It's eternity calling. God's reminding us that this earth is failing and things are going to happen, but he's with us through it all. The vignette number five I want to look at is another one that uh, is a famous one that we, we think of often in Luke chapter 17 verses 1 to 6. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if Excuse me. He sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. You can see how big a, a uh, seed is compared to a penny there in that picture. Not very big. The context of this statement is also interesting because it involves forgiveness of others who have wronged us. Uh, It provoked the disciples to say, increase our faith. How can we do this? So many of the things that Jesus said just blew the mind of his followers, uh, just were uh, a thing that, that they just couldn't understand what on earth he was talking about including this forgiveness toward others that wronged them. As a matter of fact, the uh, religious leaders only required you to forgive somebody a couple times or something. I don't remember the exact amount. Uh, So this was far beyond anything that they'd ever heard. And what Jesus is trying to teach us is that, yes, uh, things are going to be difficult. And as our next question, the question is, isn't what you're asking of me too hard? You know, that's basically what the disciples were saying. And there are many times we too may feel that Jesus is asking us to do something that's too hard, is too difficult. And he asks the impossible. Well, you know what? He does. 
He asks the impossible because it's not you who's going to do it. He's trying to teach us that the impossibility of the task brings us to the point of stopping thinking in our terms of our human ability and to depend on his resources and to think like he does from his point of view. A wise old gentleman once said something, you must unlearn what you have learned. And in a lot of ways, that's really true. We have learned a bunch of malarkey about the truths of God and his character. We must learn to get rid of the earthly ways of looking at these things and to put on the heavenly ways of thinking about these things through faith. So Jesus' answer, isn't this too hard? He says, simple trust in me can move mountains. Well, in this case, mulberry trees in this context. It takes living faith to follow these instructions. It's really not the size of our faith that matters at all. We can have little teeny, minuscule, mustard seed size faith or even smaller. But it's the one we put our faith in that makes a difference. If faith that small is put in the resources of the God of the universe, wow, uh, that mulberry tree or that mountain is going to be overcome, whatever it is in your life. You can trust him with it, whatever it is. Well, by this time, I've got to see what the time really is. Yes, that clock has stopped back there, so I'm going to just keep talking forever. We've got a long time to go. So the clock stopped, unfortunately. It did this to us last time. We did the time change, too. So you're getting the idea. There's another slide there. I get it. Put on the mind of Christ Jesus. So somebody found, did that picture for me. I didn't even have to create anything. So that was a pretty nice thing to borrow, not steal. We need to think about putting on the mind of Christ. And that's what I want to spend the the last part of our message together talking about. If you want to turn over to Philippians chapter 2, it's a little bit further than Luke, if you've never read the New Testament before. Just remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, in that order. Philippians chapter 2. And that's in verses 5 through 11 is what we're going to look at. It actually is going to be on the screen as well. Forgot about that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So there's three things that we see in this passage. The first one is that this mind is available to all of us as believers. 
the ESV puts it, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, every believer can have the same sort of mindset. It's the same mindset that Jesus had throughout the Gospel of Luke in dealing with the naysayers and the mockers and the ultimate battle for redemption in the Garden of Gethsemane. When I read that in my devotions, I was just moved with awe of what Jesus went through for me and for you. Uh, He never changed, never wavered. The Amplified Bible, Study Bible, comments that um, all godly action begins with renewing of the mind. Thinking and being like Christ are requirements not only for an individual, but also for the corporate body of believers. Together we need to think and act like one being, the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not something that's inaccessible to us, but it's available to all of us. Second thing that Philippians tells us is this, it requires humbling of and death to selfish thinking. Again, Jesus set the living example of this, humbling himself for us. How much more should we do the same? And Paul said in Romans 12, 1 to 3, that's up there on the screen, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment." each according to the measure of faith that God has designed, assigned. Excuse me. So we need to have that humbling of and death to our way of thinking and have our minds transformed into Christ's mindset. The third thing is that we need to make him Lord of our thoughts and conversations. Now, he is Lord anyway, And we often will pray for people like Elizabeth, Dick, my wife, someone just say, oh, God, have mercy on them in their thing. Well, God is going to have mercy on them already. He is merciful. But we still pray and we still ask the Lord, you know, to work his will and his perfect purposes um, in those things. But we need to remember he is Lord and Make that part of our, our conversations. How are your conversations today? What kind of things do you post online if you're a Facebooker or a tweeter or a instant grandma or whatever, whatever thing you've got there? What kind of things are you putting online? How do you communicate with neighbors and coworkers? Do they reflect that Jesus is Lord of your communication and your thoughts? Another passage that Paul wrote, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So again, three more points there. First thing that Paul mentions to us is that we need to keep our mind where Jesus is. And where is Jesus? 
He's seated at the right hand of God. We need to keep our mind focused on the eternal perspective. Secondly, he says that it's a daily conscious decision. The phrase, set your minds, in verse 2, reflects that it's a decision we have to make, a choice of our will every day. The Amplified Bible puts this in verse 2, is set your mind and keep focused habitually on the things above, the heavenly things, not on the things that are on the earth, which only have temporal value. So we have to keep our mind focused, make it a habit of our life to do that daily and consciously. And thirdly, as we do, we can glorify him in all things. Our lives will reflect him to others when we do this, and he will be glorified. Now, really what started my whole aiming toward doing this message, I had found uh, in a hymnal, which I read one every day with my devotions, an older hymn called May the Mind of Christ My Savior by Kate Wilkerson. And I just want to read those words to you, and they're up on the screen if you can read them. It says, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God, my Father, rule my life in everything, that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do love us. We are lost without you. We need you. I pray that you would help us to think after your thoughts as we crucify this flesh with its passions and desires and live for you. I pray as we read in Psalm 119 that your testimonies, your word, would unfold before us, give us light, help us to understand because we are simple. And we long to know you, we long to walk with you. I pray that as we ponder over these things the rest of this day and enjoy our time of potluck together and fellowship, that that would be blessed and uh, that we can lift you up and we can encourage one another in you. Thank you that you don't mind hearing our questions And just we have to be prepared for the answer we're going to get. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.